And the other thing that they predicted is that as a result of that, we were going to be happier, right? And has that happened? I think arguably not, right? Hi, I'm Jeremy Goldman, and this is Future Proof. While I've enjoyed watching Sanjay Gupta over the years on CNN, I have to say I've learned just as much from his brother Sunil. He is a multifaceted entrepreneur, teacher, and researcher known for his profound expertise in human behavior, energy, and motivation. The founding CEO of Rise, a healthcare startup now owned by Amazon, Gupta notably collaborated with former First Lady Michelle Obama to extend affordable health coaching to those in need. As an author, he penned the best-selling book Backable, narrating his transformative journey from setbacks to success, and his latest offering, Everyday Dharma, released this September, masterfully interweaves personal anecdotes, history, science, and both Eastern and Western philosophies to guide readers towards achieving joy and success in every facet of life. Join us as we delve into the insights and stories of this captivating storyteller starting right now. So, Sunil, welcome to Future Proof. Jeremy, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you, just in your own words, I know I had some of this up top in the intro, but who are you and what do you do on a day-to-day basis and how do you define yourself? Yeah, well, I spend a lot of my time researching and studying, I think, exceptional people around the planet. I host a show that really focuses on entrepreneurs and great thinkers and really understanding what really got them to where they are. I'm also a writer. So I take a lot of what I'm learning in the field and I put it into writing and I share that with different audiences and that turns into books and that turns into speeches. And I also teach at Harvard Medical School. You know, I was going to say, I think my parents are probably going to be critical of how your family has done in terms of raising some standouts, but with a lot of chops in terms of like in front of the camera and also like from a writing standpoint. So uh, yeah, it's really interesting when like this concept of Dharma that you've been focused on, I guess, for a while. I mean, is there like a pivotal moment in your life that led you to explore this concept of Dharma? I think it's, you know, such an important place to start. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, for me, it was a feeling of emptiness that I think so many of us are experiencing right now in our jobs. You know, I think we are showing up at our desks. We're disengaging, though, and we're quietly quitting. Society, you know, you talk a lot on this podcast about the future, and I think society is speeding up. We're using tools like automation and AI to move faster than ever before. But as individuals, it seems like we're kind of moving sometimes in the opposite direction. We're disassociating from our work, and I think we're losing an emotional connection with what it is that we do. I was interested in Dharma because Dharma is this ageless philosophy and really a practical playbook for how do we bring that emotional connection back to our work. Do you think that there is a meaningful difference? I mean, Admittedly, I don't want to say like I'm neophyte in this regard, but, you know, how would you define the difference of Dharma versus just simply finding one's passion or purpose? Yeah, I mean, Dharma is your inner calling. It's this part of you that continues to sort of speak, right? And most of us tune it out because we simply get bogged down with other priorities, right? We don't have the time or the space and we get to the point where we don't know what our Dharma is anymore. And the good news is that we don't have to necessarily blow up our lives or quit our jobs to find our dharma. We just sometimes have to remove the layers that have gotten in its way, right? And Michelangelo would look at a block of marble and he would say the sculpture is already inside, 
And all I have to do is sort of chip away the layers that are in its way. And Dharma is kind of the same way. It's something that is part of you. It has always really been a part of you. And we just have to find the way to reconnect with that essence. So in the book, I talk about four chisels, four things that we can do to sort of come back to that place inside of us. These are the four things that have mattered most to me. And one that I love and I often talk about is what I call the bright spots chisel, which is simply taking a look at identifying the bright spots in your day-to-day, right? In your work, even if it is a job that you don't like, what are the moments that are actually bringing you joy? Because if you can start to identify those moments, those tend to be portals back into this essence that we sometimes miss out on. I think it makes a lot of sense when you put it that way. And there's also this interesting thing that we're going on through now, which is why I think that this book is so incredibly timely, is, you know, you think a lot about the future of worth. That's kind of like the way that you frame it versus the future of work. And I think that there are a lot of people who are kind of, what is my purpose? What am I trying to do here? Trying to find like just to really attach to meaning rather than just not, you know, accumulate as much wealth as possible, even though that's nice. I think people are almost starting to come around to the fact that, wait a minute, like I actually want the work that I do to have like to be full of meaning. Yeah, I think the future of work is all about speed. It's about productivity. And ultimately, it it is about money, right? And it's based on the belief, I think, that if we accumulate enough money, we are going to be able to create meaning in our lives. I think the future of worth is different than that. It's about starting with meaning first. And what's important to know is that it's not saying that money is unimportant, but what it's saying is that money doesn't buy meaning. And we've kind of known that for a very long time. If you look at the studies that were done in the 1970s and 80s by John Hopkins University, it was pointing to this idea that people didn't really believe that meaning could be bought by money. And yet everything sort of seems to be rigged in that direction, right? And so if we can't count on society necessarily to sort of turn course, I think we as individuals can do it for ourselves, which really ultimately comes back to Dharma right? We all have dharma. We all have access to this thing inside of us. And even if everything around us is geared towards money buys meaning, we can flip that and start to start with meaning. And I think ultimately what we find is that if we start with meaning, if we start with makes us come alive, we bring a creativity, we bring an energy, we bring a resilience to that work. And ultimately that does end up leading to outer success. So follow-up question here. This is just something that I've started to think, especially in terms of the future of work is that there's a little bit of an optimistic and a pessimistic view in terms of where things are going and how we can find meaning. There is this pessimistic view that says, well, okay, we are going to be, that everybody's going to be scrounging for a living. There's going to be seven billionaires or trillionaires in the world. Nobody else will have any money. Therefore, people are going to lose focus on what actually would give their lives meaning. And there's a counter argument which says, well, actually, you know what, maybe we'll have more and more automation in our lives. Maybe people will be able to essentially survive on less because, you know, society is going to be very efficient. And I don't know what I obviously would love things to come out smelling like roses for us. But, you know, where do you think that whole entire like anguish that we're having tied to automation and AI, is that going to lead us to down a path of like finding more meaning in our lives? Because there will be essentially plenty throughout the land or not so much. I think one of the basic sort of ideas that I hear is that if you have more time, you're going to be able to create more meaning, right? And if you have automation and AI in your life, that'll ultimately free up schedule and that will be able to 
give you space to create meaning. But I think that sort of, while some of that might be true, I think what it doesn't account for is that oftentimes we create meaning through what we do. We often get meaning from our work, right? And if you have a robot that's doing that work for you, or you know, an algorithm that's doing that work for you, you might be more productive, but are you actually getting meaning from what you're doing? Because I think that's the thing that we are thirsty for. You know, I remember seeing a futurist that they had like a futurist from the 1950s talking about like computers and what it was going to do for our lives. And there were a lot of things that what they predicted was right. You know, we were going to become a lot more efficient. We were going to be a lot more effective. We were going to be able to work remotely. There were a lot of things that were true. But the one thing that they also predicted is that we were going to get less busy in our lives. Right. And has that happened? Right. No. And the other thing that they predicted is that as a result of that, we were going to be happier. Right. And has that happened? I think arguably not, right? We have become so much more efficient. We've become so much more productive. Our GDP has risen in a way that maybe we would have expected even back then. But are we any happier as a result? I think that's the question that we're trying to answer in this book. And I think that there's a really strong argument that the answer is no, but we can turn that tide. That's what I really liked about this book. And that's why I encourage everybody to pick it up just because you're talking about in part that, you know, history shows that outer success doesn't necessarily lead to inner well-being. And I think that it's almost on one hand, there's a bit of the human condition to thrive and to grow and to innovate. But does that also like put us as at peace? I would argue no. And it's this weird kind of thing to almost, at least on my side, think that, well, maybe we have to be a little bit more at peace and maybe we we would innovate a little bit slower as a society, but maybe that would be okay because we would actually be satisfied. And I don't know, it just seems that there is this kind of like tension between you want to innovate, you want to get ahead, but you also want to be happy. And sometimes there's a tension there. There's also sort of a misconception that inner well-being and outer performance are somehow mutually exclusive, right? So this idea of if you take care of yourself, well, then you're sort of slacking off in another way. But I think that the data, the research, and when we look at high performers, what we ultimately find is those two things aren't oppositions. They're symbiotic, right? I mean, inner well-being is a path to outer performance, right? Well-being and work aren't necessarily in opposition to one another because both are essential for sustained success. And so when we start to kind of think about the world less in a sort of notion of like one versus the other, but we start to think about, look, if we're fired up about what we do, if we're truly finding meaning in our work and we're putting into position the things that we need to do in order to do that in a long-term way, we're not burning ourselves out, we're not exhausting ourselves to the point that we no longer care about the work because we just feel so stressed out. When we start to kind of think about meaning and well-being as these tools that we can use for, for performance rather than these things that we do sort of outside of performance, the, these things that we do when we're sort of escaping our work. When we start to kind of bring those two things together for our work, that's when we often achieve, I think, the best results, right? I mean, it's, it's when the best music is composed. It's when the best companies are built. It's when we find people who are sort of in these places of real sort of opposition, they, then they pulled themselves out because they were able to find something that really, really mattered to them. And they put systems in place, the systems we talk about in the book, in order to make sure that they could go the distance. So I think to almost paraphrase what I'm getting from it, which you know I also got a bit from the book, is that you can be almost a Kurt Cobain or a Betty White in terms of 
achievement and why not opt for being the happy warrior who's able to succeed and thrive in a sustainable kind of way? Yeah, I mean, I think those are good examples, right? Because one lived into a very long time and the other ended his life early. I think we don't have to necessarily be miserable in order to achieve like top results. I think that's the misconception. And we live in a society that really feeds that misconception that you have to be stressed. You have to be burnt out in order to do great work. And yet when you look at top performers, it's not like they run away from stress, right? Stress can be a good thing, but there are limits and there are sort of things that you can put into place to counterbalance that stress. So for example, you know, one of the things that we talk about in the book that I think is so important is this idea of what we call upeka and upeka is finding comfort in the discomfort, right? Which is not a skill that we are taught, right? Either we are taught to suffer through the discomfort or we're taught to avoid the discomfort. But to actually find comfort in the discomfort isn't a skill that is often something that we learn, certainly in school and usually not in the workplace. But what we did in the book is we really went into what are the specific things that you can do to actually find comfort in the discomfort. And that really took us to Viktor Frankl's research, which was the distance, really the space in between something that irritates you and the way that you respond to that the space in between those two things is where your freedom really lies, right? And the issue is that we live now in a time when like instant responsiveness and speed has become such an overrated skill or like being asked to respond to texts immediately, respond to emails immediately, respond to something that happens. We want to put people in their place right away. And when we can actually create some space between those two things, what we earn back is this level of freedom where we can actually start to now find our comfort in these very uncomfortable situations. And when you can put yourself in an uncomfortable situation and still be able to thrive, well, then you're sort of prepared, I think, to live you know, very much in your dharma and to go the distance. So building on that, I think everybody you know, listening wants to go the distance. I think we have a lot of high-functioning, high-performers out there that we often hear from. I mean, what are some of the practical steps when you're basically feeling a little bit disconnected from purpose and you're one of these high performers who's moving at like a breakneck speed? It seems like that's a very difficult moment to realize, okay, I am disconnected. I have to find my way back, but it's easier said than done when you don't take the moment to actually take a step back and figure it out. Yeah. I mean, so much of when we think about devoting ourselves to purpose, we think about devoting time. And, you know, in the book, I show about how many people were able to shift that from thinking about devoting time to devoting heart, right? Instead of becoming fully scheduled with your dharma, you can become full hearted with it. And one of the ways that we do that is by starting to embody the persona of who we are at our essence in what we do. So for me, for example, I have known for a very long time that I love to write and I love to tell stories. I started out my career as a speechwriter. But somehow through a meandering path, I ended up as a tech entrepreneur. And I really felt like as a tech entrepreneur, I wasn't living like my path. I was living somebody else's path. I didn't really enjoy managing people. I didn't really enjoy sort of looking at cost per click and all the data that I was looking at on a day-to-day -day basis. But what I really found is that I could embody myself as a storyteller, even in this world as a tech CEO. So for example, I spent a lot of my time talking to customers and hearing those stories. I spent a lot of my time then taking those stories and making sure that every member of our team understood the impact that they were having at a human level. 
I realized that I was actually pretty good telling stories on stage. And that became a huge business development tool for the company. So I started to see how my essence as a storyteller could play out in this role as a tech CEO. And what I love about the book is how there are everyday stories of this coming alive. Like, for example, a nurse named Karen Strzok, who was a writer, right? She really wanted to write. But when she was filling out her college application, her parents said, no, writing is not a profession that makes money. You need to go do something that does. So she became a nurse. And she actually became pretty skilled as a nurse, but she didn't really love her job because there was this part of her that wanted to speak and she wasn't speaking it. But eventually, the way that she came back into her dharma is through paperwork, literally through patient paperwork. Most people who filled out patient paperwork would fill out the clinical details and hit print and be done with it. But she actually really took her time. She would talk about the patient's story, like who do they love? What do they love to do? You know, who is at home that cares for them? And she would go into illustrious, almost Shakespearean detail about each patient's story. And this paperwork became one of these like mini novellas that would get passed around the hospital from doctors to nurses to, to frontline workers because it would remind them of like their purpose. It would remind them of their impact. And the point being that like she didn't leave her job. She stayed as a nurse for a very long time, but she was able to find her dharma by bringing this persona of a writer into her work. And we see that happen all the time. Artists that become accountants, people who love to design, working in fields like the law, you can start to bring these two things together. It doesn't require you blowing up your life or leaving your job to find your dharma. Well, first off, amen. Also, I think I'd be remiss to, it's a really important thing to mention, you know, with respect to Rise's partnership with First Lady Michelle Obama, that seems to me there's a very important connection between understanding one's dharma and their overall health and well-being, no? Yeah. I mean, you can be squarely in your purpose. You could be living your meaning and you could still be burnt out, right? And then it doesn't matter, right? I mean, people who I have studied over the past 10 years, and I've gone around the world and studied now hundreds of extraordinary performers, athletes, artists, business leaders. The thing that I realize is that the people who tend to fizzle out in their lives, the people who don't reach their potential, very rarely do they run out of time. Very rarely do they run out of talent. What they almost always run out of is energy. Right? They simply just don't have enough gas in the tank to keep going. Right? And if you don't have enough gas in the tank, you might have the best idea. You might have the best vision, but you're not going to be able to get it done. You're not going to be able to reach that potential. Right? And so again, we see these things like well-being and work as these two separate worlds. And oftentimes what that means is we're trying to squeeze well-being in when we can. Get a workout in before work starts. Maybe every once in a while get a good night of sleep. We're trying to squeeze these moments of well-being into our schedule. But I think that what we're missing out on is that well-being matters just as much as the work when it comes to long-term sustained performance. The best performers are putting equal weight into both because they know that's what's ultimately going to make them durable. Yeah, the gas in the tank analogy, I think, is so appropriate here because you can be close to empty and be aware that you're close to empty and then essentially refuel, right? But you can't go on empty on the highway and that's when you find out that you're empty, right? So I do hope that we're, I mean, obviously with medical advances and you know health tech, I would hope that we're getting a little bit closer to a world where we can empirically know when somebody is close to it rather than having a hunch. Because sometimes I feel like I might be close to burnout and then I might find out that I actually have a lot more in the tank. And it seems like it's a tricky thing because none of us can quite quantify. 
but I think, you know, obviously the future is a lot more quantified than it's ever been. There is a notion of what is called the recovery paradox, right? And the recovery paradox is basically that in these moments where we need the recovery the most because we're so burnt out, we're actually able to get it the least, right? It's almost like if you think of it like almost like a fist that has clenched and it becomes very, very hard to unclench it, right? Which is why what you find for people who tend to be top performers is that they're not waiting for these moments of burnout. They're not waiting to the point where they get themselves into the red in order to get the recovery that they need. They're sort of oscillating more between green and yellow rather than letting themselves fall into the red. And one of the ways they put this into practice is through what I call in the book rhythmic renewal. Rhythmic renewal, which basically means that you're not waiting for weekends, you're not waiting for vacations but you're actually taking rhythmic rest every single day. In fact, the average high performer that we study is taking somewhere around eight breaks every single day, eight, which like most people I I share that with, that sounds extraordinary because they are so back to back to back to back, right? You get your break at the end of the day, maybe at the beginning of the day, but then when you start, you start and you keep going. But the problem again with that is that by the end of the day, we just feel so out of fuel that it becomes even harder for us to recover and get back to the green. And so instead of waiting until the end of the day, what top performers tend to do is they practice what I call the 55-5 model, right? Which is generally for every 55 minutes of work, they're taking somewhere around five minutes of rest, right? And then that rest could be doing anything. You'd be sipping on a cup of coffee. You could be doing push-ups or sit-ups, taking a walk, doing breathing if that's your thing, listening to music. It's intentional, non-productive time, which you might sort of think to yourself, well, if I'm strapped for time and you're telling me to cut five minutes out of every hour, that's cutting potentially 40 to 50 minutes of my day. Like, how is that going to help me? But what the the science shows us and what I would love for you to try is how every one of those five minutes makes the other 55 minutes far more productive, far more effective, right? far more imaginative, far more collaborative. You tend to be a nicer person. You bring a higher level of energy to your work and that has a contagious effect on the people around you just by taking these five minute breaks throughout. And I know for a fact, you've got a meeting in about four and a half minutes. So I don't want to make you crumpy, but no breaks for you, at least right now. So just two quick questions before I let you go. One thing is obviously you learn. I love that you're a high performer who learns from other high performers. And is there something that unexpected that you've learned from a challenge and resilience standpoint from some of these folks that you've studied for a while? I think that one of the things that really stood out to me, which I talk a lot about in the book, is what I call tiny contracts. Tiny contracts. And what a tiny contract is, it's an agreement with yourself to go all in on something for a fixed period of time. And the reason that matters is because like 90% of us are constantly searching for our next thing, right? Like there was a stat I read the other day, like 96% of people are going to jump to a new job or look to jump to a new job in 2023, right? 96% startling statistic, right? And when you think about it that way, we tend to sort of be a workforce where we're one foot in, one foot out. Even when we jump to something within a few months, we're kind of looking for our next thing. The beauty of a tiny contract is that you're making an agreement with yourself to go all in on something. Go all in, give it everything you have for a fixed period of time. So if you're jumping to a new job, you're making a commitment to yourself that for the next, I don't know, you set the time limit, one year, 18 months, 24 months. You are not going to look at anything else. You're not going to entertain any other options. You are just going to stay focused on that one thing ahead of you. And the result of that, that may sound like you're cutting off your options, but the result of that is that you're able to get fully absorbed 
in what it is that you're doing. And when we look at the research around success, but also happiness, what it ultimately comes down to is the ability to absorb yourself in something, to really feel like you're all in on something. There is a level of joy that can come from that. But again, we can only get to that point if we're going both feet in, if we're committing to something. So I like these tiny contracts because you're not saying, hey, I'm cutting myself off from everything else in the world. You're just saying, I'm going to do that for a period of time. And whatever that period of time is for you, that you feel like you can palette. You know, so for me now, when I'm taking on new projects, like even taking on the project of writing a book, sometimes I'm like, what am I doing? You know, book writing is hard. And like, am I really going to finish this thing? But what I do is I set a tiny contract for one year. I'm just going to commit myself to this project. I'm going to tune out the doubt and I'm going to go all in on this one thing. And after 12 months, I'm going to set a checkpoint where I'm going to come back and I'm going to say, hey, do I want to renew the contract or not? But until that moment comes, I'm going all in. Amen. Very quick lightning round, 30 seconds. We can do this. I'm just curious, Detroit is a city known for resilience and transformation in general, and you've got strong roots there. So the city have any influence in, you know, your development and obsession, you know, in a good way with this topic? Very much so. I mean, especially because I think that like, it's very easy to write a book about Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and thinkers that sort of, I think in a lot of ways, raised a bunch of capital and that's where they were living their dharma. But I wanted this book to be really rooted in people who had everyday jobs. These are people who work in grocery stores, people who work in hospitals, people who are plumbers. And I wanted to make sure that this book was really rooted in how do we all, no matter where we are in our lives, how do we find and live our dharma? Well said. We'll have a link in the show notes to this great book. And Sunil, this is great. Thank you so much for making the time. Jeremy, I love your show. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Sunil for making the time. And if you like what you just heard, and this is your first time here, be sure to subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, the choice is yours. And if you're a longtime listener, please remember to rate and review Future Proof as that's the number one way we get the show in front of people just like you. Got a burning question you uncovered on a future episode? Go to futureproofshow.com to submit. Special thanks this week to producer Jason Stack. Once again, I'm Jeremy Goldman, and you've been listening to Future Proof.